sugar blossoms, I am so excited that I get to share an interview with you I did with Sarah Chadwick. She is the author of the book, The Sweetness of Venus. I have posted about it just a little bit, and I am still so grateful and thankful, and my mind is so blown that she came on this podcast and did an interview with me, and we had such a fun time chatting. I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. If you have the book, if you are amazing and lucky enough to have found this book already, please turn to page 87 because we start this off with my favorite bit in the book. She talks about the Adam and Eve story. She rewrites the Adam and Eve story into being the sexiest version I have ever laid my eyes on. So follow along with us. I hope you guys really appreciate this episode. We get into topics that I talk about on this podcast a lot and she has amazing things to say, amazing insight, and I couldn't be more proud of this episode and more proud to give you guys such valuable insights, such valuable information this week. So I hope you guys enjoy the reading and the interview almost, because it's impossible, almost as much as I do. <gasps> Ellie, what? Oh my god, you talked about sex? The trouble with Eve. Some people argue that Christianity, whose key female didn't even have sex, has been instrumental in establishing a culture that labels women as sexually and morally lax. But before the Virgin Mary, there was Old Testament Eve, who predates Mary by five or six centuries. What exactly did Adam and Eve learn from biting the apple that grew on the tree of knowledge? Does their modesty with the fig leaf imply that their newfound knowledge had something to do with their genitals? Is the gesture symbolic of a sexual awakening or the advent of lust in their lives? We know the serpent was Satan in disguise, but how was Eve to know? All she had been told was not to eat an apple from the tree in the middle of the garden. How many of us hear an instruction but don't take it as sacrosanct until we've learned the lesson the hard way by disobeying it? How many of us have failed to take a coat at our mother's behest and have then been frozen late at night at a bus stop? or have drunk too much alcohol despite being told that mixing wine and vodka never ends well. Or have, maybe just once, made a poor decision when it came to an attractive admirer. <laughs> I bet Eve would have been wary a second time around. All Eve saw was a handsome snake, lascivious in his voice and slick with his come-on patter, as he slowly slid down the tree and invited her to take a bite of an apple, promising her she would become godlike if she did so. Eve, darling, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Didn't your mother tell you? Would you have listened if she had? Eve was tempted and didn't resist the serpent's invitation. He probably had the voice of Jeff Goldblum or Idris Elba. Standing under the tree of knowledge, Eve stretched up, cupped the right apple, and it dropped readily into her hand. She parted her lips opened her mouth, and reached her tongue down over the smooth, ripe skin to take a small bite. She curled the crisp wedge back into her mouth, savoring the tart juice on the sides of her tongue. The taste rounded out with a sweet note as Eve bit into the pale flesh, feeling its firmness before she heard the crunch. 
Eve raised her eyes expectantly to meet those of the large, muscular, unfurling snake, her senses alert to the apple's promise, and her mind thrilled by the prospect of becoming godlike. The narrative is about the promise of knowledge and power, both of which, as well as the snake, are sexy. If you ask me, it's a heady melting pot of sexy, and Eve fell for it, shared it with her man, and everyone was cursed. Eve was cursed with the increased pain in childbirth and subjugation to Adam, and Adam was cursed because he followed Eve's lead, thus setting in motion a tradition that men shouldn't listen to women, along with the idea that male dominance is a given. Can a disrespect for female judgment, female morality, and female sexuality be traced back to the Genesis story? Is this where the idea originated that no good can come to a man from a knowledge-seeking sexual woman? He taught Adam, and once Adam knew, he couldn't unknow, poor guy. His sexuality was not his fault, but Eve, she needed to make reparations and be kept under control. If she'd had a modicum of self-control or sense of right from wrong in the first place, none of this fall from grace would have happened. A man could still be enjoying eternal life in the Garden of Eden, none the wiser, happily sipping a mocktail adorned with a little umbrella and an innocent cherry, instead of slogging his guts out to make a living. Never trust a woman when it comes to sex or moral standards. Men? Oh well, that's different. Hang on a minute. What gender was the snake? I love that you love that bit. I love that bit. It was my favorite. I was reading it and I like looked at my friend and I'm like, this is amazing. You have to hear this. And I read it out loud. It's a fun thing to read because you can, I mean, just have fun of it. I mean, some of the sentences in there, Eve raised her eyes expectantly to meet those of the large, muscular, unfurling snake. You just, mm, it's very visual. Yeah, I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be erotic too. Uh, there, because I, so much of that story is interpreted in a sexual way, and and that I I had a lot of fun playing with the academic ideas that I wanted to raise with this, but also the fun I wanted to create for my reader. That part is my favorite where you do that in there because I was so excited for just the entire section on religion and then you did that and it was fun but honestly throughout the whole book you do that and it's a fun read and I got I got at least one friend really into this book who is not a reader would never touch a book like this at all but he thoroughly enjoyed it and it's just written in such a way that's easy to grasp and easy to consume and it's fun but it's put together so well as far as the content and the research and the knowledge that I have I have so much respect and love for this book now it's it's one of my favorite nonfiction books for sure thank you I I didn't read a lot of nonfiction until I was older and it was then that I realized that really good nonfiction could be as compelling as as a, as a fiction book, that it could tell stories in ways that was exciting, adventurous, um, and fun. And, and I felt the message of this book was so important that I wanted it to be accessible and not... There's a mass of amazing academic books out there that, that talk about all of the separate aspects that I try to bring together, but I, I wanted it to be empowering for everybody rather than just something you had to go and seek out in an academic library. 
and I wanted it to be a joy for people to read. And I think humor is so powerful in terms of breaking down a taboo topic and enabling people to see the irony of things without feeling personally challenged. And, and I think particularly maybe for women, I think it frees them up to laugh about something that has hung heavy. And, and I hope that with men, it, it would enable them to not feel personally challenged, but to kind of look at it and think, yeah, that, that was, that's a bit stupid, actually. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. So very quickly, could you just introduce your name, pronouns, and then maybe why you wrote the book? And for those who haven't read it yet, really quickly everything that the book is about. Lovely to meet you. I'm Sarah Chadwick. My pronouns are she, her, and uh, we met through Instagram, Pussy, and I I love that. Yes, and it's been really encouraging from the beginning, having you as like a, a friend in the Instagram community. You were one of the first people to give me encouragement on the podcast, so it, it has helped me and inspired me a lot to know you and to kind of connect before your book came out and as my podcast was was growing and as I was like falling in love with the process and the and the content I was creating so yeah it has I mean I just admire the quality of the work that you put out so I I was thrilled when you said let yeah let's talk and I remember so early on listening to one you had a friend on and, and I remember listening to it thinking I oh, maybe I should do that when my book's out so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm so glad that we're getting to do this. I've been really excited for it for a long time. All right. So the name of your book, The Sweetness of Venus, it was, it came out and was published in Valentine's Day this year, 2021. So yeah, well, Valentine's Day, so yeah. February. I'm in sweet. I'm in how cute. Yes. The 14th of February for the Sweetness of Venus. It, it felt right. Yeah, that's an awesome time to publish it. Yeah, it was an awesome read and very very informational history of the clitoris and it really is one I mean I even told my mom to read it and she has a hard time with the subject (laughs) so I mean it's accessible to everyone and fantastic information yeah I I mean my route into the book was I wanted to make visible the centuries of denial and misinformation and repression experienced by what is at its simplest just the body part why are we not giving children the word vulva and clitoris when we give them penis and scrotum? Why are so many people like your mom anxious uh, about the vocabulary around female sexuality? Why isn't it represented in sex ed and anatomy books when so much sex that occurs today is not reproductive? And and I, I minded about the inequality between the way that male pleasure it is prioritized and female pleasure has been completely eviscerated. A long time before I started thinking about writing a book, the anxiety was played out for me in a classroom in another life. I was a high school English teacher. I taught for a whole year a group of 16-year-olds in a classroom and on the back of every single chair was a graffiti penis in all of its upstanding Iraq glory. And I remember turning to the girls one Thursday morning saying, I'm really sorry, we have to look at this every single day. And then flippantly suggesting we should just draw in a few vulva in the interest of sex equality. And the boys, you can't, by the age of 16, people have imbibed this so strongly. And then when I had a, a young friend in her 20s come to me and say, can I ask you a question, Sarah? How does sex work? Uh, she said, 
I mean, obviously, I know the mechanics of how sex works, but mm, I don't think I'm doing it right. And and I realized that I had always assumed that, that nowadays, through the free availability of information and porn, that, that, the, that people were much more informed than I had been when I was younger. And, and that's when I started backtracking into what does sex ed tell people? What do people know about female sexuality? How is it being framed today? And and that and how and I wanted to then once I understood about the orgasm gap, the fact that the full structure of the clitoris was still not included in books, that I wanted to get under the skin of how we were still in this place in 2021 and and how could I disrupt it. So when you were planning your book and the subjects that you kind of wanted to grasp historically, how important was it to to make sure you had all those facts? And how did that research go for you? Yeah, I, I believe that by understanding history, people become empowered to change the narrative, to say the way we think today, in this case about female sexual desire and pleasure, comes from a history of repression, a history that was invested in creating shame and the taboo around it today. And knowing that history enables people to reclaim desire and pleasure and to challenge ignorance from a place of knowledge. So unraveling that history was, I felt, the unique thing that I could do with this book. Something I really want to do in this podcast, which you have inspired me to do from reading the book, is talk about the history of sex work. I really would like to do some research and have an episode devoted to going back in time and talking and like fleshing out the history of it and how we got to where we are today. And then also kind of look at how it's diverged around the country. I I think it would work fabulously well with sex work because there's so much I mean, culturally, it's all around us and and actually exploring the cultural, the way that it's played out culturally for us in terms of the language that people use, the images that people are familiar with, um, then gives you such a good way to kind of go back and say, okay, what really shaped this? What were the structures that meant the language we have is so loaded that the images that we have are focused on on the sexualizing of the women, but actually in all of the imagery that we have, the clients are so often absent. Uh, I think that would be really interesting to explore, particularly it was kind of the intersection of that with feminism. And, and actually thinking about it, that's so evident in the language we have around sex work and and a lot of if you looked at kind of a lot of Victorian mm-hmm. images of and the way that they talked and wrote about sex work, it would be fascinating. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I'm really curious what what your thoughts are. I, I still see a disconnect personally in feminism as it is talked about and pushed today. And it's not wanting to include sex work. Still, People still are very uncomfortable with the idea of sex work being okay, at least in this country. Uh, that is very much the case still. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on the two merging and how that can be done positively and how we talk about it and how we approach that. Well, I wish I wish it would merge. Uh, I, I wish though that the establishment would just acknowledge the demand from consumers for sex work. And I think that's where the real problem lies. I, mean, I hate the language that surrounds sex work, that denigrates sex workers, but doesn't actually recognize there's a huge consumer demand. And 
and that actually until we close that gap, I don't think we can have real conversations about it. Um, I mean, I understand that for the establishment, the issue is that so much sex work that, that is uh, exploitative, but, but until it really engages with the fact that there is a huge consumer demand for this and it isn't going to go away, I don't know how it can be moved forward. And maybe this book and talking more about female sexuality and owning it would, would open up and make those discussions easier as well. I think feminism is often working within the patriarchal framework. I was particularly struck writing my book that women advocating for the vote, the suffrage movement, had to, one of the, certainly in America, one of their primary tenets was women are sexually more moral than men. And they used that argument and as an argument for why they should be allowed to have discussion within a moral framework and where they should be able to have the vote. And wow, that was a real choice to, to forego their sexuality to, to have the vote. And, and that's been the persistent moral bind that women find themselves in. That, and again, I think it ties back to this Adam and Eve thing. Forever, mm, sexual, sex, female sexuality has been tied to female morality. And I, I don't understand why it is for women that sex has become the measure of morality. I mean, sexual decency is about respect and consent and mutuality. Mm. And yes, those are moral issues. But the act itself, it's, it's no more or less moral than eating. It's a bodily function. I mean, a damn good one, but it's a bodily function. And, and women have always been held morally responsible through their sexual activity in a way that men have not. And I think this is what feminism struggles with. I like that. And I do agree with you that it kind of does come back to that Adam and Eve thing. Because genuinely, I've, all, I've been trying to find other points where I could start as well. And it almost always comes back to religion. So that's one of the things I was curious to talk to you about was you do mention that you sent your kids to a Catholic school in the book. So I'm curious if I can ask if you are religious and if you maybe grew up religious and how that has played a part in your life? No, I'm not religious, although I grew up Church of England in, in the UK, but we moved to Chicago and the American Midwest has a very strong Catholic community. And it just happened that, that a Catholic school had a place when we were looking at schools for our children. Did, did we struggle with some of the, the rituals? Yes. We did, but I think many Catholics struggle with those rituals. I, I remember talking to my youngest son when they had to go to confession, and I and I'd never been to confession, and I said, "How does this work?" And he said, "Well, they, we get this kind of menu of things that we can confess to." And I said, "You do know what what this is, Rory? Self abuse?" And he said, "Oh yeah, the, the wanking. I'm 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 never going to own up to that." He said, "I just." I just go in and say, um, I've been rude to my mum and used some language I shouldn't have used. But So, uh, <laughs> yes, there is a contradiction, but I think many Catholics <laughs> struggle with, with the contradictions. I mean, how about you having grown up in a religious environment? Have you carried that with you? 
No, I consider myself agnostic now. It was kind of very difficult thing to get away from, though. Growing up so religious, I, I grew up going to church two to three times a week. I was about 16 when I started to question, and I was 18 when I was like full on. I This is definitely not something I can believe anymore. And it's funny because I came to that when I was at a two-week-long conference that my parents sent me to that was focused on Christian theology. And it was to really give you the best teachings for Christianity and how to defend your faith. And by the end of it, I was like, this makes no sense. And I just sat through like two eight-hour days talking about LGBTQ and how sinful and wrong that stuff is. And this is when I was like accepting being bisexual. And I had a trans friend who I who had just attempted suicide. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the worst parts that it has affected me and my siblings are when it comes down to sex and sexuality. The feelings of shame that it really puts on people. And I think it does that to everybody, not even just, just women. The um, I talked about it in one of my episodes, the sex education that we all did, made it to the point where we were wondering if it is sinful or not to hug somebody of the opposite gender. Like, we didn't even know if that was taking things too far. Speaking, I'm thinking the whole problem with this is, is the fact that somehow sex has been annexed historically as the procreative act. And and I was reading this morning, I, I took a photo of it on my phone screen, and it was talking about how actually in classical times it was the Stoics mm-hmm. who annexed sex into, and I'm going to read a quote, and it, it said that it, that it put sex into a moral framework where if it was in the pursuit of procreation, it was fine. And early Christian theologians took up this conjugal reproductive ethic. And, and by the time of Augustine, reproductive sex was the only normal sex. And that idea of intercourse for reproduction is the defining and only sex act is a social construct and it's one we've lived with for two millennia but actually the 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 human drive or actually indeed the animal drive for sex and desire and pleasure i mean who said that it had to be within this right i mean that comes back as you were saying back to religion who said it has to be within a reproductive framework but it, but it is, and, and that is still damaging today. It makes it very easy for people just to focus with sex ed on reproduction, and that's so damaging because it, it isn't inclusive, but it also isn't, it doesn't teach about safe sex. I was reading an amazing book by Peggy Orenstein about the sexual landscape for young people today, and it was saying, this generation of young people have have had more anal sex and more oral sex than any other generation in the past in the name of not actually having sex. And that's where the risk comes in because you're not educating about how to do it safely, how to do it consensually. I think the problem is the construction of penis and vagina as the sex act. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school, I was very committed to not doing penis and vagina sex until I was 17. I was very committed to that, but I was I was giving blowjobs before that. There was plenty of 
messing around and oral happening. The book really does focus on education a lot as a big, big problem today. What is that switch from focusing on the reproductive side to sex as a whole? Like, what is holding that back culturally right now? What would you say it is? It seems to me that where straight man is the dominant power base or the gatekeeper of big cultural influences, then historically we can see that that's had an impact on sexual freedom. And and I can only speak for Western culture, although I'd like to explore it further. But I think that those that's created a narrative around the importance of chastity and anxiety about any pleasure that isn't penetrated, that isn't intercourse. And reading some Victorian texts, I came across one Victorian doctor who was writing about why why text should be censored so that women were not given information about their clitoris. And he used, and I quote this, that the anxiety that women would experience, quote, marital aversion. And and I think historically there has been this belief that, that marriage stabilized society. And, and, and of course there was also in bygone days an agenda whereby people were looking to populate colonies. Certainly, in um, Victoria, you know, in Victorian England, uh, and I, I think we've not successfully moved on from that. It's crazy to think about a an educate like a sex education program that isn't reproductive based. For me, that's because I I learned what happens conception forward. And then I watched porn and that was, that was my sex education. And I feel like any time that any, any sex education program, where it's coming from religious or not in school or not, if it's reproductive focused, that's just leaving so many like points of curiosity that the natural instinct, especially when all your peers are going to porn is to get the rest of your information from porn. And to think about a system that teaches all aspects just I can't even wrap my head around what that would look like I I think as you say I mean the reason so many young people give for watching porn is is that they just want to learn more about sex and and this whole denial and Mm -hmm. it goes back to that question about sex work and the question about porn is you know both are indicative of the appetite for and the information and and the the desire and engagement with sex I mean it, it it's crazy that there are aspects of our society who are wanting to say we don't need to talk about this I mean and and I've in my book I I looked at the stats on teen usage of porn because this is something I I tripped up on and that I just had assumed that that actually today with wider access to porn everybody was more informed and that was because I was not consuming a lot of porn and I had never really thought about breaking down the content of porn and also the types of porn people were watching but when you think about it of course young people are not going to be paying for feminist or ethical porn and and Pornhub I was shocked to learn owned by MindGeek. MindGeek is one of the top four data streamers in the world, along along with Google. Um, 
and and mostly it's consumed through an iPhone. And the kinds of porn that come up when people put in careless searches uh, are, are often still modelling sex that comes through a very male gaze. And actually, the statistics are skewed in that I've got them in my book. 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to internet porn before the age of 18. Um, in a study of 304 random porn scenes, nearly 90% contained physical aggression towards women. Close to half contained verbal humiliation. And the women nearly always responded neutrally or with pleasure without there being any discussion about consent and about pleasure and desire and, and whether that was something that they wanted to be part of that encounter. The statistic that showed women orgasming and and again and i think there was one survey and and in in the sample that they watched actually the women only got to come 20 percent of the time something that i've kind of been thinking about more recently as i read your book and i also watched a documentary on netflix about feminist porn is majority of the porn that I consumed was very aggressive towards women. And I became like, I, I started with probably more tame stuff and it escalated. And I, and from the conversations I've had with people, that's typically how it goes. You are, you consume something and then you want more intensity and more intensity and more intensity. And it leads towards rougher, more aggressive, just kind of stuff, more demeaning kind of stuff. I am not unique. I know other women grew up and they kind of escalated into the rougher stuff too. And we all enjoy very rough sex. And like it's not like it's an actual honest enjoyment. And that's what we like. I don't always have to do that, of course. It's just like an extra addition, another layer, another level that I enjoy. But I've been wondering kind of, I don't want to say I was pushed or made to like that kind of sex but I almost wonder if it was inevitable and if I would like it if I had been exposed to other kinds of porn that I found just as stimulating for me you know does that make sense it does and I've got two things that I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you talk there and and the first of I, I don't know if you're familiar with Cindy Gallup who um in New York has has set up uh, her her project is make love not porn and she is I think she's kind of my age and she found she's had a very big uh, New York advertising agency and uh, I think uh, about 12 years ago one of their clients was a dating site and she said all of the people she was working with at the time were in relationships with partners and she said okay I'm single so I'll go and do the market research and and on the dating site she found that she was hooking up with a lot of younger guys and she found that their sexual script had come from pornography and and she was she was saying you know I'm not always having experiences with that are kind of healthy or fulfilling or or work and and she just really noticed the kind of the scripts that they had developed through watching porn and so she set up make love not porn which is a channel whereby people are invited to send in I guess any you know home videos of their of couples with established relationships making love having sex in whatever form for them without it being through the lens of being filmed for pornographic purposes. But then the other part of me is is thinking though, 
maybe this about sexual narratives about how sex work is maybe pornography has broken down some of the taboos you know maybe this narrative that we've already talked about in this podcast of reproductive intercourse as the model made all other aspects of sex taboo and and indeed there are whole you know people people are doing one of the most intimate things with their bodies and yet so many people still struggle to talk about desire and pleasure and what they want to happen within that, which I think, hence the orgasm gap, but also hence all of the issues around consent, is that people don't have a vocabulary for talking about it. And and again, the kind of this heaviness of taboo. You say, you know, you enjoy the way that you have rough sex. Great. I mean, if, that's fantastic. That, that you're just not carrying around the weight of how it should or shouldn't be done. As long as it's not inhibiting other more kind of tender or other scripts that you might want to explore about tenderness and sensuality and eroticism and slowness, as long as it isn't, as long as you don't feel that those have been repressed as a result of it. Currently, I feel like the internet and porn is just this massive mess and technology is just making it overwhelming to think about containing or cleaning up and making it a healthy place and making it something that people can consume in a healthy way. I think we can't put the genie back in the bottle. Um, The first thing that you talked about, about how can we make it safer, I think that comes back to sex ed. I've, I've got something here that, again, I found when I was researching for this book. So here's a couple of statistics. Most parents believe their preteens and young teens are not watching porn yet, and they say they have discussed porn with their kids. Fact, most teens have watched porn and say there hasn't been a significant conversation about it in their lives. And I I think having conversations about the way, about types of porn or about what people might see on porn, about how people are using it, has got to be that's something we could all be doing instantly that would change the relationship people have with porn Uh, and and bringing it into sex education would be great it's funny when you were talking about how most kids have watched it and not had a significant conversation because i immediately thought back to the first time i was caught looking at and it wasn't even watching porn videos. It was the first time I was caught looking at nudity online. My my dad saw it and he came in and the conversation was not healthy at all. It was all about how it's wrong to be looking at these things and I shouldn't be doing it. And then one of the things that stuck with me the most that he said was, and now I had to see it too. Yeah, I would never after that have gone in for a conversation about it or any type of sexuality after that conversation and it stuck with me for sure but that's the only time I ever talked about porn with my parents and that and it really even wasn't about porn it was just don't look at this stuff yeah and I suppose that's the problem isn't it is the intersection of do you make it the responsibility of schools with sex ed programs and certainly that's maybe the route that the UK is going down where it's mandated in all schools and and they're currently rewriting a kind of much broader more inclusive curriculum or you know, to what extent do you say parents and families 
to have the final say on whether their children are able to be exposed to that kind of sex education. It's hard. I mean, I do think the majority of porn is consumed through phone screens. And also when you, I found setting up the platform, it's personal girls on, on Instagram is, wow, there are incredible sex ed- young sex educators out there. And I'm thinking, what a perfect way to provide sex ed because it's like porn. It's on a phone. It's, it's not traceable. It's so discreet. You know, people don't need to know you're watching it. You've got your earphones in. It, it's a very private experience. And, and maybe enabling people to access And just flagging up to young people, uh, some of the biggest accounts I follow are are working in India and and they say the sex that available in India is appalling and and yet their audiences are huge and grateful. Um, And and maybe one way of kind of balancing porn is is maybe obliging some of the big providers of porn to, to flag up, you know, the fact that this is porn and then there is sex ed and this is also available. Mm-hmm. So your book is fantastic, but I'm curious what your plans are now. Uh, do you have future goals and plans as far as writing or at the very least, if the world opens up again, are you going to try to do some book tours? What are your future plans? Def- definitely right now, my primary focus is is to market and promote the book. It's been published by a very small independent press. There's no marketing budget. There's been no big release. It's me and uh, the momentum that I generate. And whilst at times that's incredibly daunting, it's also very exciting because I think it means the book, it's not like there's been, wow, this huge explosion and, and then it's kind of all that's done now. I think there are so many people that I, once I introduce myself and the book to them, are saying, wow, we didn't know that. Yes, we'd love to talk about it. So so my hope is that for the next year, I can keep marketing the book. I think the message, I think the message is important. But yes, I, I do want to write another book. I also, I enjoyed the process of research and, and I do have another idea germinating and I, I would like I'm letting that quietly sort of ferment while I market this book. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Are there any final comments or thoughts on the book, on Sugar Pussy, on life that you'd like to add? Oh, well, Pussy, I love the fact that that you loved the book too. I Yeah, and that's something I loved about your podcast too, is just the the enthusiasm and, and just the kind of the love in your voice when you're in your podcast listening to them. I, I just felt here is someone I could talk to about topics that that have been off menu for a long time. And, and it, I find it incredibly optimistic that that you and I can meet through Instagram, that, that we can use our voices to drive change. And um, thank you for, I hope we can keep cheerleading each other. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Your Instagram, um, any, anywhere we can find you on social medias, your Instagram and any other kind of plugs you want to give, shout those out so people can find you and people can get your book. And so my Instagram platform I called, it's at it's ITS period personal girls and and I I played around with the idea of should I call it the history of the clitoris and and I went for at its personal girls because I wanted to have a voice that spoke about issues that were personal to women 
a really huge thing for me is I've just started using Twitter and my handle there is it's personal girl and and Twitter is I think a platform where I could get visibility with the gatekeepers of culture with with influencers who would be able to elevate my book and therefore following me on Twitter and liking my interaction on Twitter would be huge in that it would raise the profile of, of the book and enable me to cheerlead for better sex ed and more pleasure all round. So those would be my two platforms. And the book in, in the North America, it's available in bookstores on Amazon everywhere where we normally buy a book. But in the UK and the rest of the world, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's also on Spotify uh, as an audiobook, and in fact, on every channel where audiobooks are available, and globally as a Kindle. Sarah Chadwick, everyone. I hope you guys really did enjoy that. Sarah is a beautiful person, and she is so intelligent. And to find someone as passionate about these subjects as me with that level of research and knowledge around it was so exciting for me and it was amazing to be able to connect and do this podcast and it's one of the things that I am so grateful to have this platform for to have opportunities like this one so please grab yourselves a copy of this book I wouldn't be pushing it so hard if I truly didn't think it was a book everybody should be reading. It's one that I think my most Christian friends would benefit and love. It's one that I think my most conservative friends would benefit from and love. So links to her social medias and her book are in the show notes. Go check it out. Now I told you guys I was going to be starting the segment kink deep dive with you this week or next week and because the interview ended up going a little bit long it will be next week so that'll do it for this week next week i promise you i'll have andrew on we'll talk about choking Mm. so don't miss it next week i can't wait to talk to you guys thank you for listening to this full episode of sugar pussy (laughs) 